So I want to talk a little bit specifically about forgiveness. Uh, in in this article by uh, 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 where Larry Dossi is commenting on the research, it's talking so much about forgiveness being so hard because it carries, to, in order to really genuinely and completely forgive, the mind has to give up telling itself a certain story of what happened. It has to just give up the story of we, of what happened, how it was injured. And it's something, there's something in the mind that finds it very hard to do that. It gets... <laughs> there are a couple of little babies around. Was it the baby one? There's a wee baby that's running around that's very cute. So I wanted to, I wanted to read you a particular story because I find this very... Uh, I, maybe I won't read every bit of it. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sermons of the Buddha. I'll read a little bit just because how many people have never heard reading from the Majjhima? Okay, it's, like it's, sort of, it's nice to read a little scripture. This is the Angulimala sermon. A mala is a, is a, a, mala is a string, like a mala of beads. Um, you'll hear about the string. Does it say about... Um, okay. Thus I have heard. On one occasion, the Buddha was living in Jetta's Grove in Anathapindaka's park. And on that occasion, there was a bandit in the realm of King Pasanadi of Kosala named Angulimala, who was murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and district were laid waste by him. He was constantly murdering people, and he wore their fingers as a garland. That's what Angulimala means. It means a mala made out of fingers. It's very... And the reason I thought to do this, to teach about this, to well, several reasons. First of all, we, we had talked about what human beings can do. And I met someone a few weeks ago who said, I had just read something that you had written 10 years ago. It's in an old thing. She said, well, you had said you didn't like the story of Angulimala, that it was grisly. And uh, it is grisly. Uh, she said, it's one of my favorite and most moving stories because it talks about the possibility of a person changing. She said, that's maybe the most important story, that you can change yourself even if you're... So So then I went back and looked at it again, and I decided I was moved. Then, when it was morning, the Buddha dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. When he had wandered for alms and returned from his alms rolls, round. After his meal, he set his resting place in order, taking his bowl and his outer robe, set out on the road leading towards Angulimala. Cowherds, shepherds, plowmen passing by saw the Blessed One walking along the road leading towards Angulimala and told him, do not take this road, recluse. This road, on this road is the bandit Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings, villages, towns, and districts, been laid waste by him. He is constantly murdering people. He wears their fingers as a garland. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, even 40, but they have fallen into Angulimala's hands. When this was said, the Blessed One went into silence. And then they told him again, and then they told him again. 
But the Blessed One went on in silence. And the bandit Angulimala saw the Blessed One coming in the distance. And when he saw him, he thought, this is wonderful, it's marvelous. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, even 40, and they've fallen into my hands. And now this recluse comes along unaccompanied, as if driven by fate. Why shouldn't I take this recluse's life? Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Blessed One. It's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> I, hadn't re- I could have told you this story, but it's actually written better than I could tell it to you, especially if I had read it to you for the second and the third time I skipped over. Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One, who was walking at his normal pace. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, it is wonderful, it's marvelous. Formerly, I could catch even a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift chariot and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift deer and seize it. But now, though I am walking as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse. Stop, recluse. And the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. And the bandit Angulimala thought, These recluses speak truth, assert truth. But though this recluse is still walking, he says, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. Suppose I question him. And the bandit Angulimala addressed the Blessed One in stanzas thus. While you are walking, recluse, you told me you've stopped. But now when I've stopped, you say I have not stopped. I ask you now, O recluse, what's the meaning? How is it that you've stopped and I have not? Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings. But you have no restraint towards things that live. That's why I have stopped and you have not. And Angulimala says, Oh, at long last this recluse, a venerated sage, has come into this great forest for my sake. Having heard your stanza teaching me the Dhamma, I will indeed renounce evil forever. So saying, the bandit took his sword and weapons and flung them in a gaping chasm's pit. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. The enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed addressed Angulimala with these words, Come, bhikkhu. And that was how Angulimala came to be a bhikkhu. Is that lovely? I love that. I love that. It's not a lot of discussion. (laughs) <laughs> it's not any it's not you know negotiated he says I got it and the Buddha says come Bhikkhu that's the sweetest I also get goose pimples from that don't you that's the sweetest doesn't have to Monk. Monk. He says, I want to be a monk in your order. I got it. 
says, come. <coughs> That's it. That's his initiation. I won't read you the rest of it, but the stories that are told about it is that Angulimala becomes a monk, and for the rest of his life, even though he's taken robes, people remember who he was, and they vilify him, and they call him names, and they hit him when he comes into town, and that he is um, serene through all of it, recognizing that those are the karmic fruits of what he did before. It's not, um, and it does not demand that he respond to it. It's just what's happening as a result of his living out his karma for what he did. Some of the other com- the other renditions of this, although this is actually the Sutta rendition, in several of the stories about it, it says Angulimala had an unscrupulous teacher who uh, who told him that he should be killing people and that was an act of merit to kill people. And so Angulimala really didn't know what he was doing and therefore had killed all these people. But it's not in the sutta that way. And I, I, I sort of, t- I, I, I need to check where that's come from. I t- I, does anybody know the, the source of that? I often see that as a commentary on it. And I think maybe it's a kind of a midrash, an, a, an explanation that's meant to mean Angulimala really wasn't uh, that kind of murderous villain in his core, that he actually thought he was doing the right thing, but he was bewildered, he was confused, he was led astray. But I would like to think that everyone who does that is confused and be- bewildered and led astray without someone telling you that, that it's, uh, it is bewildering. It's, uh, it's, the, it's, it's the action of a bewildered mind to think that that will lead to happiness. The part of the story that moves me, the, what, what, what moves you? What moves you? What do you like about that story? Do you like it? Yes. even before I came to Buddhism was that men are basically good. Mm-hmm. And whatever they do uh, is caused by some drugs most commonly. Uh, they are misled. And I truly believe that and, and I've seen it. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Thank you. I just think that just knowing that redemption is possible for for somebody with fingers around his neck and a garland. I mean, there's hope for all of us. <laughs> That's what this person who challenged my 10 years ago thing that I said about Angulimala, so I had to go back and look at it again. I was really moved this time that I read it. Um, so, And the question is, for one of the questions for me is... Um, The, the Buddha's response is a compassionate one. It's actually free from any negotiating thing. 
doesn't say you first have to prove that you changed, and you first have to make restitution, or you first have to apologize. So you got it? Okay. You got it. It really cuts through that there was a, that there was a villain and there were victims. There was ignorance. Now there is clarity. It's finished. There was ignorance. There was clarity. But he's not a villain anymore. I had an experience just this last weekend that I thought I would tell you about. It's a, different, a whole different valence of story. I went to, um, but it's about villains and victims. I went to a wedding uh, in <coughs> Philadelphia. And uh, I went on Friday, I came back Sunday, and it was in the way of um, big um, uh, traditional Jewish weddings. Three days long, it started at sunset on Friday. The actual ceremony was Sunday at noon. By that time, so many ceremonies and, and services and things had happened that everybody was in an extremely high and elated mood. And it was a complex wedding. Uh, the 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 two people that got married have been together for a while. They apparently love each other very much. Everyone is very excited about that. And the family structures are, uh, were a little uh, complex. There were four mothers and four fathers involved in the, in the <coughs> all there, all involved in the service. And everybody here knows that you could have different degrees of comfort around the, because there are obviously a lot of stories involved with how come there are four mothers and four fathers there. So a lot of, a lot of different water has gone under a lot of different bridges to get up to <laughs> that place. And those of us who are on the, on the, on the, in the contemporaries of those four mothers and four fathers are older than them, actually, know some of all the things that have gone on. This occasion isn't happening out of no background. After, uh, and it preceded, it proceeded, and everyone expected it would, in total loving harmony. Everybody was great. That's the way those kinds of things should happen. And it did. What was the real moment where I thought about it? Is there are moments throughout the weekend where various people, especially on, on Saturday when there's a, a prayer service, where different people are uh, called up to perform different functions. They read Torah, they do something or other. And at the end of performing a function, it's customary for the celebrant of the service to uh, bless that person with life and peace and joy and everything good. And at the end of which, the whole community says, Amen, to seal that. And it, it was wonderful for me to watch different of these various people in the story of this complex life, in their turn to get blessed, be blessed, and have everybody else, including all the people in their various peculiar historical configurations, shout out amen to it. It was wonderful. And I, I particularly looked to be watching. <laughs> I did. I mean, I know, who's, you know who might hesitate, who might not. Everybody amen everybody else. <laughs> it was great. Part of how many people share this particular cultural context with me? How many people can visualize what a traditional Jewish post-wedding celebration will look like with a klezmer band? <laughs> it's loud. What happens? It's a tribal rite, is what happens. I looked at it, 
And I thought, what if a person from outside this tribe was now watching this? The, the marriage ceremony happens. Everyone proceeds up to the room where the party will be, the bride and groom, spend 10 or 15 minutes quietly talking to each other, and then they enter with great fanfare. And a klezmer band of enormous volume then plays very vigorous music, and everybody dances with everybody. It's not at all like the, the bridal couple will now have the first dance <laughs> in a stately way. None of that happens. Everybody dances in circles and up and down, and leaping is actually de rigueur. Those people who can leap, leap, leaping, clapping, slapping, stamping, running around. Of all ages and all people, and whoever can participate, participates. And uh, naturally, there's a, there are 200 people leaping and stamping, but there's room in the middle, and it's loud, room in the middle for the main people to be doing things with each other. So people are, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of a dancing. It's not dancing like you know about it, but it's holding hands and whirling around, and mostly holding hands and whirling around, and it, it's a choreographed thing. People pick up people on chairs. All of a sudden, the bride will be lifted in the air on a chair, and she's holding on for dear life, and people running around. And then the groom will be lifted up, and then these parents, and those parents, and these parents, and those parents, and these parents, and those parents, and these parents, and those parents. A few grandparents, everybody carries around on chairs. Everybody's stamping and clapping and leaping. And the energy in the room is incredible, the, the level of exuberance. And the looks on people's faces are, they have altered states of consciousness. Following which everything settles down. This goes on for about 20 minutes and settles down. And a couple of people got up to say the blessings before the meal. And one person, catching their breath following all of this, said, you know, I love it that you're all here today, and I love all of you. And I thought to myself, that's the mind state in which the stories fall away, and everyone in the room becomes a person that at that moment you love. And I thought to myself, I have to remember this now. I actually did remember. I came home, I was talking to my friend Jack Cornfield the other day. I said, look, I want to talk about exuberance. Because classically, exuberance is the uh, near enemy of, uh, of empathic joy. And uh, classically, in, in classical Buddhist texts, it says don't become exuberant because you'll forget about suffering. That, uh, you know, you can get excited for people when they have some joyful occasion, but don't, uh, don't get car so carried away that you forget that life is difficult and challenging because you want your heart available for that. I said, I want to challenge that, Jack. Because uh, they say, don't, don't, you know, don't get carried away with the exuberance because you'll forget about suffering. I, I said, I don't know that you forget about suffering. In the moment of exuberance, you forget about grudges. And you forget about stories, and you forget about history. And the mind becomes so spacious that what you remember in that moment is that everybody is a person. Everybody is, ha everybody is there because they're happy about that occasion. Everybody has history, and everybody has stories. I am so aware that I construct my reality around which stories I care to tell myself about what happened in my life. And I would love it if I could blow out all the stories and start again clean, which is what forgiveness is. 
real forgiveness is, and this I'm going to get up to talking about Larry Dossie now. I think that real forgiveness has to do with putting down all the stories about who did what because everybody did everything. You know, one of the things I'm aware of, also from being part of a big family and now being one of the elders in that family, is that nobody is in the same family. That's really, I mean, everybody tells a story about family <laughs> that you think, which family were they in? They, you know, they had a different, you know, it didn't happen this way, it happened this way, you know, because everybody has a different story. One of my friends said, I grew up in an entirely different family from my brother. And I, for a moment, I remember the first time I heard him say that, I thought he'd been boarded out for the first X number of years. <laughs> and, it, you know, but in fact, we grow up in a completely different family from everyone. Everybody has what they think happened to them and what they tell themselves about what they think happened to them. Somebody told me a story this morning about something that they remember that I did not that many years ago. It was fortunate. It was a good thing. I have no memory of it whatsoever. And my memory is really good. But I thought, oh, I'm glad, you know. But, but I don't have any We have selective memory. And this is the key to getting into Larry Dossie because talked about the key to forgive, that one of the things that non-forgiveness depends on is telling stories over and over again, and that the telling the stories over and over again sets up what, what the uh, scientists are calling, and what the Buddha would have called as well, ruminative mind, and that the, the uh, energy of ruminative mind is antithetical to the energy of love and of connection and of ease that in the moment that you can look out and say, I love everybody here, if someone were to stop and interrogate you and say, well, you know, you really didn't like what so-and-so did that time. No, I really didn't. But in this moment, it is possible to love everybody here and that minds can do that, can lift themselves over the stories and love everybody here. You don't have to like everybody here. You don't have to approve of what they did. They're very clear in this article that forgiveness has nothing to do with condoning or allowing or thinking it was okay or not fixing. It's a whole different dimension that forgiveness means I am stopping telling myself the story out of compassion for myself and out of compassion, mostly out of compassion for myself. That the, the telling the story is a continued assault on one's own psyche. So I'm thinking, anyway, I told Jack that whole story. I said, so what do you think about that exuberance? He said, you know, that's the whole point of kirtan and of all the devotional practices that we don't do very much in this tradition. But when uh, all of the religious practices, when you chant a lot, enough, when you say uplifting things, enough, liturgies are uplifting. The reason that people do liturgies is that they lift up the mind. And you suddenly see over the boundaries of your particular story. I think to myself, I had this vision the other day. It's as if somebody, uh, I, it, was, it was such a dimensional uh, understanding in my mind. I was thinking about lift up the mind. And I literally could see it as if suddenly I was in my backyard and uh, there was some way in which I could uh, be lifted up high enough to see into all my neighbors' yards, which is something like what we do when we say what's on our minds here at the end of the sitting. All of a sudden you see what's in your neighbor's yards, that this neighbor has a terrible disease, 
that this neighbor is getting married, that this neighbor is struggling with alcoholism, that this neighbor is about to have a baby in two weeks. You see the whole of life, which puts your story in a context, and then it becomes not my story that I'm suffering so much, but part of the whole cosmic story of everybody is suffering a lot, and everybody is having a life at the same time. We are all of us here because we are managing so far today to manage to continue to be in a life that is, there's nobody here that doesn't have sufferings. I've been on a lot of flights recently, and you know there's a way in which when as you're landing, when you're way up high, you can't really see down. But as you're landing in the final approach, you see your whole communities. First of all, you can see the whole way that the, you know, that the community has been laid out on somebody's drafting paper, where the streets are, and where all those little houses are. It looks like Monopoly from the air, doesn't it? <laughs> looks like a little Monopoly board with all the little houses here and there. And if I'm in the right mood, I look down and think, in every one of these houses, there's a whole story unfolding. And every one of these houses is the center of the world. Every one of these houses views the world from out their window. And they see it that way. And they cry and they weep and they rejoice and they, uh, they suffer and they don't suffer just the way I do. I actually think that it's, a, it's a very uplifting for me to look out. You don't have to actually look out. You can look in the airplane. Say every one of these people in the airplane here has a story that's going on with them. They're all going to or from something that they either want or don't want to go to. And, and, and actually, someone said, how do you actually have conversations? You always have so many good conversations with the people on planes. How do you manage to do that? And I say, well, here's the trick. You don't say to them, how are you? Because the answer is fine, you know, that, that's the answer. You say to them, are you pleased to be going where you're going? And then they either say, oh, yeah, I'm going to my granddaughter's birthday, da, 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 and that's got a whole story. Or they say, no, actually, my brother is dying somewhere. But you got to ask them something about how's your heart about this. So do you want to know the research? It's not at all surprising. So, but it's now called The Science of Forgiveness. This is in a, a magazine, new magazine called Explore, which has just started, the, science, the magazine, Journal of Science and Healing. Um, so I'll tell you this, little nice, this very nice thing that Larry Dossie said as the beginning of this. He said, there are no boundaries to forgiveness. These uh, researchers in this article uh, have talked about mainly forgiveness within and between individuals. But, <laughs> says Dossie, forgiveness is also uh, currently being discussed at national and international levels. Should creditor nations forgive third world debt? Should those who have been enslaved forgive their oppressors? Should victims of Holocaust forgive their tormentors? Can we summon the humility that is required to seek forgiveness for our attempted genocide of native peoples for degrading the environment, the only, hope, the only home we have. A society that cannot forgive is one without a heart. We should not wish to live in such a society or a world in which forgiveness is never extended. With the escalating religious and political hatreds around the world and the increasingly sinister ways of seeking vengeance, it is uncertain whether a civilization that is devoid of forgiveness can continue to exist. 
Then he goes on, and let me... He talks about the science of forgiveness, he says, is really up now in journals, he said, because psychology has changed and psychotherapy has changed to what he is calling positive psychotherapy. I, he doesn't say this such a thing as negative psychotherapy, but he's talking about a switch in psychology from thinking about pathology to thinking about um, um, salubrious states like awe and wonder and gratitude and the treatment of an aching heart uh, by cultivating gratitude or awe or wonder or wisdom about this is the way the world is rather than making it um, uh, making a happier heart contingent on going back and reinvestigating former traumatic events. Mm -hmm. It's only been the last hundred years that people have assumed or come to assume that if we are in pain, it's as, as a result of certain events that happened in this life. And that investigating them will, will decrease the pain. There's some value, I think, to the examined life. But I think people are now seriously discussing whether how much investigation exacerbates the pain of traumatic events by causing them to, come, to become foremost in the mind again and reviving irritated feelings that you could ruminate about, or whether there's a way of actually healing it, that it's not actually escapism to cultivate a larger framework to be able to say, this happened to me. It was terribly painful. And life is full of painful things and also extraordinary things. Also, look around. It happens to everybody. This endeavor of life is so complicated for everyone. Not that one's... I, I actually find it's not so helpful to think uh, about who's got, who's got more troubles. You know, how can I feel bad? They have more troubles than I do. Mine is not that bad. Everybody's is that bad. Everybody's own life is as suffering as it is for them. But to be able to say, I am in the community of human beings who suffer because it's the nature of life. That's actually the first noble truth. It's not depressing. That the nature of life is that it's challenging. Somebody was saying to me this morning, you know, that earlier this morning I met with someone who said, you know, when you get a really big challenge in your life, this person's uh, uh, partner has just been given a good diagnosis. Oh, I'm so happy about your sister-in-law that you said this morning, Susan. That was great. We've been hearing about her for a year. Yeah. That is wonderful. You know, that, that, that the people who we hear a lot, didn't, when you heard about yeah. Susan, we know Susan's sister-in-law just because we've heard about her in the prayers. What a great, what a great piece of news to hear. Somebody was telling me that her partner has just been given a clean bill of health from a very scary thing. And she said, while it wasn't, while it was scary, the, the ridiculous stuff in life, who I have a grudge against, who annoyed me, who this me, who that me, said, that was ridiculous. I, I didn't think about that. That was nothing. Because I knew what was important. So now as soon as what was important went away, Here's my mind. It's back on the ridiculous. She said, she said, I'm beginning to think that my mind is chronically like a two-year-old who hasn't had a nap. You know, it's just, you know, that, you know, that, that 
<laughs> I actually like that a lot, that idea that the mind is like a two-year-old who hasn't had a nap. Because it's a great line, isn't it? It's like a two-year-old that hasn't had a nap. She says, sometimes he can keep it happy a little bit, like for five minutes he can stall it off. But then it's back again, cranky again. Now, later on we got to talk about uh, curiosity and uh, uh, creativity and uh, interest in the world as being a way that gets you out of yourself and keeps you from being cranky. And, um, and that curiosity was a natural thing, particularly for young children. So, and, I, and, I saw, and she was talking about having listened to, seen the Dalai Lama teaching and how curious he was. It was a conference of Western uh, scientists talking to the Dalai Lama and other meditators said he was so curious and so interested in everything in the way of young people. said, well, he's kind of like a two-year-old who has had a nap, you know, that, that <laughs> interested in everything. And I, and I thought, that's what I'd like for... Actually, as I brought it up a little bit. I said, I want to be like a four-year-old, because two-year-old is... But a four-year-old who has had a nap is where I'd like to be with my mind, interested and curious. It's a whole other way that we can go about curiosity, but I, want, I just want to tell you this research because I promised, because uh, I wanted to tell you the definitions of forgiveness, which seems so clear to me that they have to have like a scientific journal that said uh, about what forgiveness is. What, uh, what they're talking about what forgiveness is and what it is not. Forgiveness is not condoning, reconciling, justifying, excusing, pardoning, letting go, and moving on with one's life, forbearing or forgetting a transgression. Uh, it's not any of those. It's remembering, and remembering in the context, they don't say this, this is me saying, this is the Buddha saying, it is remembering, but remembering in the context of wisdom. Remembering in the context of this happened because, it ha because of all the conditions that, 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 um, that led up to it. Um, Should I do this? Sometimes I hesitate about telling it. This is the best story I know. It's a story that someone told me, and, and some of you have heard it, but it's really the best story I know about what that means. So let me ask you, who knows the story about Brett getting held up in the middle of the night? Will you be bored if I tell it again? No. Okay. I haven't told it in a long time, so maybe I can tell you about Brett getting held up in the light, because it makes the story more succinct than I could. And it also makes the point that getting held up in the middle of the night in a strange city by a person really confused on drugs is a traumatic event. So Brett told me the story at the end of a meditation retreat on, in uh, a retreat center on the East Coast, and I met him at the end of a week-long retreat, normally I'd meet someone earlier, but there were three teachers. He'd met the two other teachers during the week. And I saw him at the very end of the uh, retreat, and he said, uh, this has been a really remarkable retreat. Uh, he said, first of all, I came on this is my first retreat, and I came on it because uh, I read an article in Time magazine that said meditation is good for you. And I've never meditated, and I don't know anything about it. But I could take this week off. I saw there was a one-week retreat. I came. 
He said, and I came and I sat down the first night and I had those instructions about just be with your breath and be present and just try to be present to your current experience. He said, I took some breaths and I relaxed a little bit and right away from the back of my mind emerged uh, the recollection of an event that happened to me four years ago. He said, that was so terribly traumatic that I put it in the back of my mind. I refused to look at it as a, the most terrible event. I couldn't bear it. And I just haven't thought about it for all this time. But I, there it was. And I thought to myself, well, I ought to be here for a whole week now. And I can either try not to think about it or here it is. So what else am I going to do? I can't fight the whole week. He said, so I let myself remember the event of four years ago. He said, so can I tell it to you? I said, yeah. He said, four years ago, I was coming home late at night uh, in such and such a city on the East Coast, big city. He said, and it was my fault. I was walking through an area where I really shouldn't have, it's not a safe area to be at night by yourself. And uh, suddenly, uh, uh, from an alleyway, a person jumped out in front of me, a man jumped out in front of me. And he was clearly really crazed on drugs and really incoherent. And he had a gun and he put the gun at my chest and he said, I'm going to kill you. Give me everything that you've got. Give me your wallet. He says, I gave him my wallet. And he said, and actually, he said, unusually, I had a great deal. I don't remember, $700 in my wallet. I never had that kind of money in my wallet. But so I didn't even think about it. I just took the wallet out of the pocket and I gave it to him. And he took the wallet and he put it in his pocket. And then he put the gun back at my chest. And he said, I'm going to kill you. 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 And I, he said, I said to him, wait. And he startled. And I said, wait. He said, look, I have this very good wristwatch. I'll give you this wristwatch also. So I took off my wristwatch, and I gave him the wristwatch. And he put that in his pocket. And then he put the gun back. And he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Like he was working up the energy to pull the trigger. And I said to him, stop. But I didn't have anything else to give him. So I said to him, listen to me. You did great. You did wonderful. You have no idea how much money is in that wallet. There's a lot of money in that wallet. And that is a fantastic watch. It's a very valuable watch. When you show these to your friends, they are going to be so proud of you. You did great. Now go home. He said the person turned around and left. a scary story, isn't it? So it's always scary even to me. I tell it, I'm scared. And it was scary to me to hear it. Even he was sitting in front of me telling the story, so I knew that he must have not gotten killed, but still. It's a terribly <laughs> scary story. It's a terribly scary story. The story has many dimensions to it, but if we stop there for a minute, the thing that I thought about most, most, maybe since then, is that um, here's this person who's not like a person, the person whose mind is completely crazed, really, on drugs that you can't talk about coherently, that's out of their mind, that the one wavelength that goes through is you did great. You did wonderful. Your friends will be proud of you. Now go home. 
That makes me always tearful, that what people want to hear is you did great, you did one vote. Somehow that can go through a completely crazed mind and make a dent in it. That gets me. So then he told me the story, then he said, so when I began to think about this story that I'd been afraid to think about for four years and I told it to myself, I discovered I'd sit there and the story would reveal in my mind like a movie and I would shake and uh, I'd feel cold and uh, I'd feel terrible. All the feelings of that moment came back to me. And I had trouble catching my breath and it's finally it would be like a movie, it would finish. And I'd be all in a sweat and I'd breathe and I'd breathe and I'd feel, okay, it's finished. And then the story would start again. It would play again through my mind. And he said all week long, every time I'd come back, I'd sit down, I'd be walking. Sometimes it would go out of my mind that we'd have a good meal or I'd be walking outside. But all of a sudden, I'd think, okay, it's settled down, that story is done, I'd settle down. And it would play again, and I would feel upset, and my body would be tense. So finally, it played again and again and again. And I guess I, it was like a movie. I saw it so many times, I knew what the end was. He said, finally, I could sit there, and I could just remember it. He said, I said, he said, I said, he said, I said. And I didn't feel upset in my body. I could sit there pretty quietly and just breathing. And I, w- and I felt, finally, I'm all right. And he said, yesterday, an amazing thing happened to me. After all of that, I was sitting, and the movie started again, and it played all the way through, and I was pretty calm about it. I thought to myself, I'm really all right. I can do this. He said, and I suddenly had the thought. I remembered him, and I remembered me. And I thought to myself, he was who he was, doing what he was doing, because of everything that had happened in his life. And I was where I was, being who I was, doing what I was doing, because of everything that happened in my life. And if I had had his life and he had had my life, I would have been doing what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he said, and in that moment, I actually forgave him. Mm -hmm. He said, and then I really felt better. Mm -hmm. And then he said, do you think that was an insight? <laughs> so I told him I thought it was. <laughs> but that's the best story, I, and I'm glad I told it to you, because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a real story. The only thing that's not real about that story is I changed his name. I changed his name. Um, but otherwise it's a real story. And it really makes the point that forgiveness does not happen because you try to do it or because it's a nice thing to do. It happens actually when the mind gets it that things happen because they couldn't be otherwise and there are no villains and no victims. There are just people acting because, they're act- because of everything that's ever happened and that there's no one to forgive and no forgivers. That's when the real forgiveness happens. When you realize it couldn't be otherwise. If there's a villain, the villain is confusion. The villain is, um, the villain is confusion. The villain is ignorance. The villain is, um, I, w- I would even like to leave it as the villain is ignorance when the mind is confused. <laughs> 
because even greed or hatred, that comes actually later, that the mind that's confused doesn't think. And the mind that's confused doesn't know about suffering, doesn't, doesn't know about the suffering, that doesn't know that what it's doing will cause itself pain and other people pain, is not able to feel the pain of that, is so far removed from the awareness that I was talking about earlier about if we just end with uh, the, um, that story I told you about the laundry folding and uh, hearing my friend say, I want a deeper understanding of suffering. If in those moments when I am aware of the suffering in the world, both suffering because the world is a, a, a regular, because life is temporal and all these things that we mentioned and everything else happens to everybody. We are all in the dilemma of living a life challenged. You can't have another kind of life. This is life. When you realize that, that we're all sort of walking around in a, in a cosmic hospital <laughs> where we're either getting better from some, something or trying not to get something or, until the, or taking care of someone who has something. When you realize that, just like when you're in an actual hospital, you lower your voice and you become kinder. You don't have a fight with somebody there. You realize that we are all fragile and vulnerable and that life is very precious. It can end all of a sudden, just so. Um, some, there was an accident on uh, Wolf Grade a week ago. I didn't, do you know if that person died? I don't know either. Heard about it. But my son was driving around the corner with his daughter. And she told me about it And the next day because she was shook up about it. She said, you know, I saw him a second before. He zoomed around the corner on his motorcycle. They were in their car and they said, when we came around the corner, he, the motorcycle had skidded and he was under the truck and out on the side. She said, I don't know that he was dead. She said, but certainly very hurt. She said, and a minute before, a second before, he'd been so vital. And for all of us, it's such a fragile world. You know, and to, to have soldiers out killing each other purposely in a world that... So that deeper understanding of suffering... If I go back to my friend who said, you know, the calamity in my life keeps the nonsense out of my mind and then the calamity goes away, the nonsense comes back. If I keep a wide view of suffering, then it keeps the nonsense out of my mind. That doesn't have to be my personal suffering. And if I only had the wide view of suffering, I don't know what would support my heart. So the other part of the wide view of suffering, well, two things. If I have a wide view of suffering, it will include the awareness of compassion as the human response which by itself is so consoling. That when we sit and we listen to each other say this is what's true in our lives, everybody, I, I feel uplifted. Even if we didn't say who got married and who had a baby and you know, who did this, that's, that's a fortunate thing. I would feel consoled by the resonance of consolation that I feel in my heart and I think in the room that we share, that human beings feel about that. And a little bit of, of exuberance, I think, is also good. 
I don't want to miss any opportunity to jump up and down at a wedding or notice the baby deer or the baby turkeys, however odd they look. And <laughs> so it's after, it's after 11. I was going to even leave at 5 to 11 to be on time for my appointment. So I, am, I didn't, because it was important to put all those things in what we said. So I can't stay and, and visit, especially with the people who have come just today. So really, Richard, have a great voyage. I think that's a wonderful thing to be doing with a five-year-old. Can't imagine my grandparents. I mean, I have wonderful grandparents, but it was a different time. <laughs> so, and may everybody thrive, and um, we'll see each other next week. Take a breath in and out. Well, may the merit that we accrue by our good hearts and being here together and supporting each other um, be given uh, freely for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 22, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.